Good morning. Um, Our Bible reading today is taken from the letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through to verse 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you so much for reading for us, David. Good morning. My name is James. I've recently started as a trainee here at St Jude's, and I'm also a one-day-a-week vet My boss on Friday said that he'd rather me be a a one-day-a-week Christian and a full-time vet, but that's not going to happen. 
Following Easter this week, we begin a short two-week series considering the implications of Jesus' resurrection. Firstly, today, what it means for our lives now, and next week, what it means for our future bodies. But let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, help us now as we come to your word. Help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to grasp what it means to live in light of his glorious resurrection. Change us to be like him, we pray. Amen. In my work as a vet, I spend a fair bit of time in the car driving between farms. I quite like this part of my job. It's beautiful countryside, and I know nearly every road and lane. It's a great feeling washing up after a carving on a frosty morning, waving goodbye to a little calf who's just awkwardly trying to take its first steps and settling into a nice warm car. My drive back to the clinic is usually to the tune of ABC Talkback Radio. Not a popular choice for my generation, I know. <laughs> One particular day, the presenter asked people to call in and share with the listeners a birthday they're celebrating. As you can imagine, there were the expected calls like, it's my grandson's first birthday today. And I'm sure there'd been an Aunt Edna turning 90. Another caller insisted they were turning 21 but the wobble in her voice suggested otherwise. Then there was an unexpected call. He said, I'm a Lutheran minister and today I'm celebrating my new birthday. Silence. The presenter didn't know really what to say. The minister went on to tell that about 30 years ago he had become a Christian. He said that day marked the death of his old life and that day he was born again a new person. This day meant more to him than his physical birthday. It's common to hear stories of major events that changed the course of people's lives. But this was different. This was a testimony of a man who claimed he had died and had been raised to life again. How on earth could someone say such a silly thing? Well, the Apostle Paul says it's true. It's true for every Christian today. It's the result of being united with Christ. It's the result of a new identity, a heavenly identity. Look at verses 1 to 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Paul addresses the Colossians, he makes three claims. One, you died, past tense. This has already happened for them. Two, you have been raised, also past tense, but it's also their present position. And three, verse four, you also will appear in glory. Now that's future tense, still yet to happen at some stage in the future. But how does this happen? It happens 
with Christ. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You also will appear with Christ in glory. These things can only be true because they happen with Christ. In the previous chapter, Paul describes again this reality in verse 12. He says, Having been buried with him, that is with Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. So you see, it's by faith through God's powerful working, by faith through the power of Christ's death and resurrection, we have been united with Christ. As a result, what is true for Christ is true for us. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And his home is our home. And where is Christ now? Verse 1, seated at the right hand of God. And there we are also. Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. What's true for Christ is true for us. He died, we died. He rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. You could think of our unity with Christ a bit like this. I have an amazing backpack. When I look at it, I think, wow, it's done all sorts of things. It's been to university, it's climbed Table Mountain, Last year it went to Belgium, now it comes to St Jude's. But all this is only possible for one reason, it's strapped to my back. Of course I take it on and off, but our unity with Christ is permanent, unbreakable. What's true for Christ is true for us. Now it might not look like it, but this is the present reality for us. It's a powerful spiritual reality. For now, it's a hidden reality. Our death and resurrection with Christ has already happened in the most profound way. We have a heavenly identity. But from the outside, our bodies haven't changed. The world around us can't see what's happened. But, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Resurrection life begins now, and it will be perfected when Christ returns. For now the world can't see it, but one day, unveiled glory. Paul insists that if you have been united with Christ, we have already been raised a new person. Did you know this? Did you know that you have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ? Has the weight of this identity struck you yet? Does this identity shape the person you are? Paul says the right response for someone who has been raised with Christ is to set their hearts and their minds on things above. It's crucial we understand the logic of Paul's argument here. He doesn't say, strive to live godly lives now and perhaps you'll be one day led into heaven. 
No, he says, you have already been raised a new person. You have been seated in heaven. Now bring your way of living into line with this. It's often expressed, become what you are. You have been raised with Christ. Live a resurrection life. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Our new identity calls for a new way of living, and so Paul goes on to describe how resurrection lives ought to look. He said it's to put off and put on. He uses the image of putting off an old set of clothes and putting on a new set. Firstly, it's a life that puts off sin, verses 5 to 11. And secondly, it's a life which puts on the likeness of Christ, verses 12 to 17. Paul makes clear in the book of Romans that in dying with Christ, we have died to sin. By Christ's death, sin's penalty has already been paid. Sin's power as our master has already been put to death. But now Paul says it's time for sin's presence in our lives to be put to death. Unlike sin's penalty, putting sin's presence to death is a slow death, a lifelong commitment to put to death. Sin's presence and power will only perfectly be put to death when Jesus returns. But where does the power come from for us to put sin to death today? The answer is Jesus' death. To put off is to put sin to death by the power of Jesus' death. And what is the power that enables us to live new lives today? The answer is Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection was so powerful that it not only raised Christ from the dead, but enables us to put on, to live a new life today. It's the same power that will raise everyone on the last day, 1 Corinthians 15. This resurrection power is also at work in us by the Holy Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5. Please do not think that you have the power to stop sinning yourselves. The whole Old Testament teaches us that we don't. And in fact, Paul has just said at the end of chapter 2 that following human rules in order to live resurrection lives is useless. He says, chapter 2, 23, such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made rules are powerless to make us stop sinning. I know this from my attempt to stop eating Easter eggs. If I move the eggs from the table in plain view and put them in the pantry where they're out of sight, it doesn't change my desire to eat them. Human rules don't work. We need God's power. Verses 5 to 11, God's power to put off. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. The old self is gone. Now put to death its ways. The old self and its ways belong to earth. We belong to heaven. The old ways of sin have no place in heaven. 
Remember that cold, wet, frosty morning in central Victoria with the, how, the cow having trouble giving birth? Well, let's just imagine it all started with a phone call at 5am. The farmer got up early to check his cows and noticed a problem. Oh dear. He calls the vet. Lucky me. Those still asleep, when the phone rings, I tell him I'll be on my way. I get out of bed and get in the car. But instead of putting on gumboots and overalls, I decide to stay dressed in my slippers and pyjamas. How totally inappropriate. I've spared you the worst of it, but I think this photo just gives you a small taste of the poor choice that would be. For a vet, slippers and pyjamas have no place in the field. For a believer united with Christ, sin has no place in God's kingdom. In fact, these things are not just out of place in God's kingdom. No, it's far more serious than that. They provoke God's righteous anger. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, Paul says. Sin dulls our delight in God. It doubts our trust in God. It diminishes our service to God. And it damages the unity we have with others. Paul gives us five examples of sins to be put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. These are sins of the heart, wrong desires. He goes on then to describe another list of five. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And then he adds, do not lie to each other. These are sins from the mouth, sins that wound relationships. It's likely these practices characterise the Colossians' old way of living, it may well be that these sorts of things publicly characterise your old way of living. Maybe they are still a very real daily battle in your public life today. But when we gather on Sundays, we generally don't see these sort of things play out. Our welcomers aren't filled with rage. People exchange peace, not slander. People don't carry out evil desires over a cup of tea after the service. At least I hope not. But does this mean that they are not present among God's people? Sadly, no. And if you know your own heart, you'll agree. It's easier to ignore sin than put it to death. It's easier to excuse sin than put it to death. It's easier to hide sin in secret than put it to death. How deceiving and corrosive it is to take this approach. Here are just a few examples. At a domestic violence training day a few weeks ago, we heard about a man who was a generous, kind-hearted and well-respected father amongst the school community. But to the teacher's disbelief, it turned out this man would often erupt in anger at home towards his family. One person in public, a different one behind closed doors. Anger towards those he should love most. Put it off by God's power. 
Pornography is a secret sin. It's sexual immorality, impurity, lust. You must put it off by God's power. Hurtful words from our mouths. I've stumbled badly in this area. These are words that tear down rather than build up. Gossip, lies, harsh words, frustrated ranting, words that humiliate, critical comments. Put them all off by God's power. Of course, Paul's list of things to put off isn't exhaustive. While we're called to put off the ugly sins, don't forget we're also to put off the respectable ones. Sins like prayerlessness, discontentment, unthankfulness. Strip them off, Paul says. Put sin to death. Don't just prune it back. Don't take it into secret. Don't just put it away to be brought out on a special occasion. No, put it to death. Dig out the root. In my garden, we have a few oak trees, and around this time of the year, they start dropping acorns, and before long, they start growing. Now, they are unwelcome. No one wants 50 oak trees per square metre. You might think that a good way to get rid of these seedlings would be to cut them off at ground level. And from all appearances, this seems to be effective. That is, until next year, when an even better developed root system sends up an even stronger, more vigorous shoot. It's not enough to cut off the shoot. We must deal with the root. Put the root of sin to death. Tear it out of your life. Well, how are we to do this? We know that we do not have the ability ourselves. Paul's already said in chapter 2 that man-made rules at best cut off the shoot but leave the root. In our own strength, it's hopeless. But it is possible through God's power. The power of Christ's death enables us to put sin to death today. Now, it will be slow. Sometimes it may feel like a walk around the block. But we can deliberately and decisively deal with sin. Here are a few ways which might help in our battle. Firstly, we can pray for God's help. Ask that God would be at work in transforming our hearts. Pray with King David these simple words, Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Secondly, God's spirit works through God's word. So commit to memory a verse to help you when tempted. Here's one to remind me of the power of my words, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that, that, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And finally, be accountable to someone. This might be a spouse, a minister, a trusted friend, someone you can speak honestly with, someone who will pray for you, someone who will tell you the truth in love and gentleness, 
someone who will remind you of the truth of the gospel and won't deceive you with false words of comfort. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. If we are to decisively and deliberately put off the ways of the old self by God's power, then we are to decisively and deliberately put on the ways of the new self by God's power. Where the old ways result in dissension and division with God and other people, the new ways foster unity and harmony with God and fellow believers. Verse 12 to 17, God's power to put on. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds all things together in perfect unity. We are so concerned about our appearance, aren't we? How we look, what other people think of our wardrobe. Do these colours work together? We love to receive compliments on our clothes. I can just imagine if someone came up to me and said, James, you look simply divine today. I'd certainly be taken back. Now, I can't recall that ever happening to me, but what a compliment. But here's where the compliment misses the mark. If you really want to look divine in the truest sense, if you really want to look like Jesus, then it will be seen not in the clothes that you wear, but in the godly character you display. How much more beautiful is godly character than the finest garment? How much more do you think God delights in our consideration to put on love each day than our best outfit? This is the mark of a resurrection life, a life modelled after the Lord Jesus. Each morning as you put on your clothes, Paul says, you're not ready for the day unless you've also put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love and forgiveness. Let's memorise this list and pray that the Holy Spirit would help us put on these qualities as we get dressed each morning. Wouldn't that help us take our eyes off earthly things and set them upon Jesus? Tomorrow morning, don't forget to put on compassion, to put on kindness, to put on humility, to put on gentleness, to put on patience. Wouldn't we prefer to leave that one in the cupboard some days? Don't forget to put on forgiveness. And don't forget to put on love. Putting on isn't just something we do individually, it's something we do together. Verses 15 to 17 gives us a picture of resurrection life together. When we together put on the new self, the result is a stunning picture of unity. It's a community ruled by peace, a community soaked in God's word, and a community centred on the Lord Jesus. It's a community ruled by peace because we are united by Christ's peace. 
peace purchased on the cross. Peace so perfect it bridges all divides, cultures, races, social classes, education levels, professions. Remember from verse 11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. There are to be no divisions between God's people. How blasphemous it would be to say of another believer from another culture, she's not quite one of us. Let Christ's peace rule in your hearts. It's a community soaked in God's word, delighting in it, treasuring it, upholding it, being shaped and transformed by it. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And finally, it's a community centred on the Lord Jesus, a community who holds at its centre his glory. He is the focus of all we do and say. He is the focus of our worship, our teaching, our ministry. He is the one who deserves all thanks, honour and praise. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Resurrection life begins now. Would it be our heart's desire by Christ's power to put off the old and put on the new? To put sin to death and clothe ourselves in Christ's likeness? To grasp our identity in Christ and live out what we already are? Let's pray. We do thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. We thank you for the new life that we have in him. Help us to set our hearts on things above. Help us to put off sin and put on the likeness of Jesus. Help us to live together in unity, ruled by peace, soaked in your word and centred on Christ. We ask this for his glory. Amen.